scared and trembling We are the desperate we lost We are the lone and hopeless We are the outcast orphans We are the ones no one wants But a father is gone Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Online, of course, you can find us on our uh, podcast platform, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. Live streams are on our website, faithonhill.com. And uh, we also put the videos up on our Facebook page. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill, both Instagram and Facebook. In person, we have Kids Church, we have worship through song and prayer, we are in community with each other, and we read and hear and submit ourselves to the Word of God on a weekly basis as a regular spiritual rhythm of our lives. Throughout the week, as part of our spiritual rhythms, uh, we gather in small groups and we pray together and we study God's Word together and we uh, grow deeper with each other in relationship and connection as a church family. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. Now, we are going to continue our study in the book of the Revelation this morning. We will be in chapter 6. I hope your Easter weekend was phenomenal. We had a great Holy Week, uh, you know, starting in Palm Sunday, uh, Good Friday, which, you know, to me was one of the best Good Friday services I've been a part of. And then uh, Easter Sunday morning uh, to come to celebrate, to rejoice, to have some fun. And uh, we did all of those things and uh, could not have been more happy with everything. So looking forward to what God's going to do as we go into the spring here and we continue our study in the book of the Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 4, John saw a vision of the throne room in heaven. And he saw the throne and one seated on it radiated power, majesty, glory, authority. Surrounding the throne were four living creatures who were almost indescribable. They are bizarre you know, in, in my small group, we're still talking about them a couple weeks after that, you know, we studied chapter four. Uh, and then surrounding that is four, uh, 24 thrones where 24 elders sit. And uh, wh- where whoever these elders are, they represent, I believe, the covenant communities that God has established, the old covenant, the new covenant, all the believers gathered together and represented in these 24 elders. And then surrounding the 24 elders is a multitude, thousands upon thousands of the angelic beings, the supernatural creatures, those who dwell in the heavenly places, all giving praise and honor and glory to God, never stopping saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then in chapter 5, 
John starts to see activity and action within that throne room area. And room's the wrong word. We just call it a throne room because that's what it is. But it's this expanse. It's the place of the presence. And he sees this scroll that we talked about last week. And we don't know exactly what the scroll is. Some say it's the symbol of God's authority and right to rule. Others say that it is the title deed of the earth. And no one was worthy to take it. No one was worthy to take hold of it and lay claim. I personally tend to think it's a sort of all the above situation. But whatever it is, John begins to weep because no one is worthy to make things right. And then one of the elders comes to John and says, don't weep. Look, the lamb, the lion of Judah, the root of David, the lamb who was slain is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. And that's what happens here. This scroll had writing on both front and back sides, which was unusual. It was sealed with a wax seal. Now, that's not unusual if you've ever seen like an old-timey movie or something. You know, they had these letters, and instead of like licking the envelope like we do now, they would put some hot wax over the, uh, the fold of the envelope, and then somebody would press a signet ring or a stamp into it to show this is who sealed it, and then the wax would cool, and it would hold that envelope in place. And as long as the seal was not broken, you knew that no one had read your letter. In this case... It has seven seals. Now there's debate, uh, and I don't really care, but, but let's just go with this. Uh, it's a scroll. It's rolled up. It's exactly what you would think of when you think of a scroll. Are the seven seals all along the edges of the scroll where the final page of the papyrus or, or, or skins or whatever it was being used, where that finally wraps around and you begin the scroll? Are there seven all the way across? Or is there a seal and you break one and you read some of it and then there's another seal to go to the next section and so you have to break another seal and as as you go deeper into the scroll, you have to break more seals. Uh, I don't really care. But the point is that Jesus was worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll, to read what was inside. And every time he breaks a seal, something happens. And in fact, the seventh seal, when it's opened, it's such a big thing that it can't be described as one event. And so it is described as seven trumpets being blown. And the seventh trumpet is such a big deal that it can't be described as one event. So it is described as seven bowls of judgment and wrath being poured out on the earth. It says, Verse 1, chapter 6, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures that surrounds the throne say in a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and then around Another horse came out, a fiery red one. The rider was given power to take peace from the earth, to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and before me there was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a loud voice among the four living creatures, saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, but do not damage the oil and wine. What's that mean? 
We're living it right now. Inflation and food shortages. There comes a conqueror. There comes war and bloodshed. And for the average person, it becomes hard to live. And you don't have to look far. I mean, it's harder for all of us. Here in America right now, if you're an average person, things are more expensive. You go to the grocery store and it is more expensive. You wait a minute, that didn't used to cost me so much. War leads to suffering. But the rest of the world, it's far worse. In the rest of the world, it's far more dire. In parts of the world, in Sri Lanka and in, in Central Europe and in, uh, in Eastern Europe and in Asia and in parts of Africa, where the supply chains have been cut off, the Ukraine is the breadbasket of the rest of the world. We can feed ourselves here in America, but everywhere else, they rely a lot on Ukraine and Western Russia for their wheat. War has cut that off. But don't touch the oil and wine. Well, those are signs of wealth, of, uh, you know, just having stuff, uh, affluence. It's, it's amazing. You know, I, I, Elon Musk lost more money than any person has ever lost this last year. Elon Musk lost more money, billions of dollars, than any one single person has ever lost in the history of humanity. And it did not change his quality of life one ounce. And that's how this thing goes. This is speaking of the inequality of war, of suffering, that the ultra-rich, the elite, they're fine, and the average person will suffer far more. Then, verse 7, the Lamb opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. The rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. So what is prophesied here is that a fourth of the people living in that day will die as the effects of these four horsemen. Yes, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Conquering and death and famine and starvation and inflation and all of these things lead to one-fourth of those living die during that time. So these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is what you've heard about. It's been borrowed and referenced throughout literature for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, most noticeably, or notably for me in my childhood, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are actually pretty central figures of the X-Men franchise. Comic books, right? Reference these guys a lot. Uh, but not just comic books. Epic poems, fiction, fantasy, philosophy are aware of this prophecy. And then Jesus opens the fifth seal. Before we go on, it's important to remember Jesus is opening these seals. We think of Jesus in a certain way. And people have certain narratives of Jesus. But it's Jesus who is bringing this judgment on the world. Because he is worthy to do so. We talked about it last week. He is the one who has the ability and the right and the worth the position, who he is, makes him the one worthy to do these things. And he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. 
They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, the first is what I'd like to say about the fifth seal, and then the second thing I'll say is what others like to say about the fifth seal. The first is what I'd like to say is this. These are those who are martyred for their faith. And throughout the history of the world, and specifically the last 2,000 years of the history of the church, there have been those, and in far greater numbers than we realize, who have borne witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through their life, through their words, through their deeds, through their action or inaction, they have said, we believe that Jesus is king. We believe that God became a person. And that, that human God, fully God, fully man, lived a life of perfection, went to a sinner's cross as the sacrifice, as the payment for our sins, and was resurrected from the dead three days later by his own power. We bear witness to that truth. In some eras and in some places, bearing witness to that truth is received with gladness. There are times where people are eager. There are places where people are quick. There are moments where people say yes to Jesus. There are other times where that testimony is met with apathy. It's met with a cold shoulder. It's met with disadvantage. It's met with rejection. And there are Christians all around the world who experience this. There are Christians who lose place and prominence in their community when they place faith in Jesus. There are people who lose family connections when they say, I believe Jesus is Lord. And all around the world, that is a reality. The American experience is somewhat unique and somewhat, it's not just that it's unique. It's, it's that it's aberrant. It's that it's not normal. There was a time, there was a season, there was a small window, relative to speaking to the rest of human history, where following Jesus, at least in name, not in actual practice, but you know what I mean, just the people who were like good church-going heathens, that got you somewhere. You, you got ahead by going to the right church. You move to a town and you say, hey, I'm going to join, I'm going to become a member of this church because that's the respectable church and then I'm going to do this and that will give me a place within the community. That doesn't exist anymore. And it has existed almost nowhere throughout the rest of human history and human experience. But there were these windows where that was the place and that was the thing to do. For most people, it's not. And so for them, bearing witness of Jesus was about somewhere between apathy and rejection from their community. For others, bearing witness to Jesus meant great persecution, beatings, imprisonment. That's where John was. He was on the island of Patmos on a, on a, on a deserted, desolate place that he was just left to die. Every one of his fellow apostles, the other of the twelve, 
when they bore witness to Jesus, they met the fate of death because of that witness. And they are included in this group, those who have experienced death because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. The greatest, as far as we can tell in history, the greatest single persecution of Christians that has ever happened, happened in Japan. That there were Christians from the Nestorian tradition, numerous throughout Japan, and then they were wiped out. There are depictions and descriptions from non-Christian sources. So this isn't Christians trying to like say, oh, look how bad we had it. From non-Christian sources, there are descriptions and pictures of literally rows of crosses. You would walk down a road outside of town and the road on each side would be lined with crosses of the Christians in that town or city that they had crucified. There was a mass, mass genocide of Christians. There were still a few left. It's always interesting to me. God always leaves a remnant. To the point where when Catholic missionaries reached Japan, they found believers. And they were shocked because they had no record. Because, well, let's be honest, Westerns, Europeans, especially back then, we don't really care about things that non-Western Europeans were doing, right? And uh, so they didn't have a record of, of the church in Japan. They thought they were the first to get there classic Europeans, but they, they thought they were the first to get there. And then they find believers, these small pockets of believers who were taking communion with rice wine and, and with, uh, you know, a little rice, but like they were, they still observed the practices and the traditions and the sacraments and all these things. Massive persecutions of Christians in Russia even before the communists, you know, everybody thinks, oh, the communists, they were anti-Christian. The czars, man, they'd go after you if you weren't part of the state church that propped up the czar. In, in Africa, in Asia, in parts of America, where Christians have been persecuted. Where have Christians been persecuted in America? Ask the black church. Ask the minority church. Those who were standing in witness for Jesus as churches were firebombed. And they are here under the altar. And they cry out for justice. How long, O Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They're not calling God out like you're doing something wrong. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, we know you're good. We just want to know. We know that you will bring justice for our deaths. When will that come? And they're told to wait a little while longer. That's what I have to say. I want to acknowledge our brothers and our sisters who have borne witness to Jesus even unto death. But beyond that, what others say, there are many who say that this is the halfway point of the tribulation. There's about seven year period talked about in the book of Daniel chapter nine, a seven year period where God is going to deal finally with his wayward people, the people of Israel. And so they say, you know what? The first three and a half years are bad. And then God removes the church and we see here, these are those who have died during that, that time, and they're removed, and then maybe that's when the rapture happens. But yet, what does it say? It says, wait until the full number of your fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. There are those who say that no one becomes a Christian after this. There comes a point halfway through the tribulation where no one becomes a Christian. 
And yet, we're going to see in just a few verses that there's more witness to, to have. There's more people who are called specifically to testify to the truth of Jesus. So I have great appreciation uh, for the people in the camps that say, yes, we know that there's a rapture because we see it in the Bible. You can go back a couple weeks ago and, and see that Bible say we did on the rapture. Um, I, I have no interest in fighting with other Christians about it. And at the same time, it's so clearly taught in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And, and so I, I, I get kind of annoyed when people say there's no rapture in the Bible. So I appreciate the, the, the people who say, hey, we think the rapture happens, we just think it happens here. I don't get it. I don't agree with it, but I appreciate them, and I can at least have some common ground that they, you know, hold to some truths that I think are far more important. Verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as a fig drops from a fig tree when it's shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Other translations say shaken, so it's not literally that they were removed, but they were shaken down to their core. It was such a violent event. Let's say this. When I read this, it was interesting because if you, if you know the ancient cosmology, which means, those are big words, I know, but it, it, it means how people in John's day would have seen the universe. They didn't really believe in outer space. They understood that there were stars and there were planets. In fact, there was a difference between stars and planets. They had, they had quite a bit of astrological knowledge and uh, astronomical. But they had this idea that this the stars and the planets and the skies, while they existed in the heavens, that ultimately everything was sort of a vaulted ceiling, that there was a limit and it was far closer than, than we would think now. But they thought there was a limit to the universe and that uh, the stars and the planets and everything in the heavens existed under that sort of vaulted limit. We, to call it a ceiling is to undersell it, but that's the idea. The, the best way I could describe it is, I remember the first time I went on Pirates of the Caribbean. I love going on Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland, and the reason is, it's not because the ride's so much fun, although it's kind of a fun ride, but the things that they do with the ceilings and the lighting to make you think that even though you are in this big sort of cavernous warehouse that they built, that even though you're there, they've got you convinced that you are outside. Even though you are in Southern California, they have you convinced that you are in some sort of Southern Gulf swamp. It's, it's fantastic what they do. And so if you think of it that way, that's sort of how they saw the universe, was that, was that there is this end, there's this limit that you could eventually, you know, if you were to get high enough, reach the end of these things. So when it says that the heavens were rolled up like a scroll, it's talking about the very fabric of the world being changed. When I read this, I had great sympathy for those Christians who sort of do the, like, here's my end times chart. If you haven't seen them, you've seen them. You know, the ones who get very conspiracy theorists and they've got strings everywhere and they've got all the end times charts and they're, you know, who's the Antichrist and what does the mark of the beast mean and all this stuff. 
And they read the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another. And honestly, the Bible is sometimes less important seemingly than the newspaper. I had sympathy for them, though. Because as I read this, as somebody who's read quite a bit, I, I like to think I'm well-read. It's understandable for a modern person to see things within the book of the Revelation and say, what if an ancient person, a first century man like John, the apostle, saw something in the future? How would they describe it? How could they fathom it? I mean, imagine, think about this. There was this meme going around last year that I thought was brilliant. And it it said, it, it showed a picture of a woman wearing a mask holding up a fancy ice cream cone and taking a selfie. And it said, imagine explaining this to yourself 20 years ago. So not just an ancient person like John who lived almost 2,000 years ago, but just take yourself and say, all right, 15, 20 years ago, imagine explaining that. What is happening here? Why is this person wearing a cloth mask when they have food in their hands? Why, why is it that they have this you know, device? You might not even know that it's a phone because phones looked so incredibly different then. And why are they holding it up and looking at it? Are they looking at a picture? What is happening? You wouldn't understand and then try to describe it. Or, or take your, your grandparents and imagine you tried to sh- show them that picture and said to your grandparents, what is that? What would they describe it as? And then go back a couple thousand years and see modern warfare technology. I understand why people start to get kind of conspiracy theorists about these things, because as I read chapter 12, from my modern understanding, or sorry, verse 12, from my modern understanding, I th- immediately think of nuclear war. That's ex- it would fit what John was describing. There is a danger. There is a danger in having a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in another hand. There is a danger in trying to take everything in the Bible and especially the book of the Revelation and trying to shoehorn it into current events. Oh, well, the mark, you know, the the four horsemen, obviously Putin is the one coming and conquering. Well, let me tell you, historically, Putin's not the first guy that people have said, oh, that's him. Hitler, Mussolini, Napoleon, on and on and on. There have been people who have been given that sort of title. You could understand if Christians had read this and and there is one coming bringing conquering and war and death and you might think, oh, it's the Vandals and the Visigoths coming to sack Rome. Oh, it's the Mongols coming from the east. You could see where there have been those who have tried to fit that bill. There is a danger in taking things too literally and too in the moment. There's also a danger in allegorizing things, in making things everything so spiritual. Because you miss the important point. If you argue about this whole thing between verses 12 and 13 and 14, about you know, the, the, the sun turning to ashes and the moon turning, you know, the sky turns dark and the moon's red and, and fig, you know, stars fall from the sky and all this stuff, what, what is that? You miss the big point if you go too literal or too allegorical, and here's why. Verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. If there was any kind of conflict along those lines, we all know this, we've seen the movies, 
our leaders and our elites, they will bug out. What happened in COVID, the elites all got on private jets and they flew to bug out shelters in New Zealand or private islands off of Costa Rica. And they hung out for a few months off, you know, in their own little uh, fortresses. We know from 9-11 that if, if something were to happen, they would whisk off the most important people and they would get them to secure facilities. Incidentally, many of them are under mountains. But what's the more important thing? It says in verse 16, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? There are seven types of people described in these verses. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and then everyone else, both slave and free. And seven is a complete number in the Bible. It's describing the whole of humanity. And they are hiding, and they know that this judgment is coming from God. Do we know how they know? No, but the Bible says they know. And yet, they still will not repent. They still will not turn. There are moments when people know this is happening in my life because God is doing something. There are people who know God is trying to get a hold of me and I've been running and I'm just going to run harder. When will you repent? People know that God is real. Most people are not atheists. Most people believe there is a God. Most people have this awareness of the divine. And yet, God calling to them, they reject and they run. These people know what is happening to them and they will still refuse to repent. And a fourth of them will die. But this isn't the end. Chapter 7, verse 1, After I saw this, the four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. That's really bad, by the way. If the wind were to stop, If the Gulf Stream and the ocean currents were to be interrupted, that is horrible. That's like, you know, a day after tomorrow kind of stuff. It's very, very bad. Incidentally, something like this would happen if there was a massive nuclear exchange. Is what's talked about in the sixth seal a nuclear exchange or is it something supernatural from God? Is God literally hurling asteroids and comets at the earth. Either one is bad. Either one would accomplish this. If there was so much debris kicked up into the earth uh, that it, it, it basically blocked out the sun and things grew suddenly cold and currents were affected and changed, this would happen. Then I saw, verse 2, another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So this is a pause. We have had the first six seals. They've been opened and terrible things have happened. And now there's a pause before the seventh seal is opened. Now I said a minute ago there is a danger in taking this far too literally. There's also a danger in taking this far too metaphorically. Timelines are kind of the same thing. 
We know from the book of Daniel that there is a final seven-year period in which God will deal with the world and specifically with the people of Israel. So we have this this rough idea of a seven-year period. But when things in the book of the Revelation happen within that time, that should be taken very loosely. The, are the, you know, the seven seals, the overall, like over all those seven years, this happens. And then that seventh seal zooms in and we get a closer picture. And then that seventh trumpet zooms in and we get a closer picture. Is that how the timelines work? Or are the timelines kind of, you know, it starts and then it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. I don't know. I I have a tendency to say, you know what, I'm going to take things literally and somewhat chronologically. And at the same time, I'm going to have great caution and humility to say, you know what, I don't know. And some people make these end times charts and timelines of the book of Revelation, and they're so specific and so sure. And I think we need a lot more humility to say, maybe we don't know as much as we think we know. Now, These judgments have happened, and then there's a pause, and we're told we need to seal these 144,000 people from the tribe of Israel. Hmm. All this judgment is happening. And then there's this pause to, to put a seal, to put a mark, to put a stamp. These are the people that God has for this purpose. And what's interesting to me is that Instead of focusing on what they do, we focus on who we want them to be or if we want them to be us. Countless groups have claimed to be the 144,000. If, if you name a like Christian-adjacent cult or faith, and Christian-adjacent, you know, I mean people who have an awareness of the Bible in their religious order or uh, faiths that have uh, some sort of... Uh, ancestry that links to the true church. Uh, So we could say, for example, Islam has roots in local tribal religion in, in Western Europe, or sorry, Western Asia. Islam also takes elements from Judaism and takes elements from Christianity. So they have opinion about who the 144,000 will be. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Latter-day Saints, their DNA is from Christianity. And so they'll say, oh, we're the 144,000, or the 144,000 is a select group of us. And there are people all over the world who have tried to lay claim to this. And it's a, it's a nice number because, well, it's a nice number because it's a big number. You can have a big group, a viable group. If you're trying to put a group together and you've got like 20 followers, you got room for expansion if your limit is 144,000. But then it's an elitist group. We're the special ones. We're the ones no one else understands the truth. No one else is as loved by God as we are. What happens if your group gets too big, though? And once the Mormons got bigger, they started to de-emphasize. Once Islam got bigger, they de-emphasized. Once the Jehovah's Witnesses got bigger, they're the ones that got bigger but still emphasize it, so there'll be 144,000 in heaven, and then the rest of us will be on this, like, paradise on earth. What to me the 144,000 reveals is people's desire for position and exclusivity and prominence. And none of these things reflect the kingdom of God. I want to be in this special group. I want to be in this important group. I want to be in this elite group. Yet what is it that 
We're told in chapter 5 that Jesus purchased us from this world so that we could be servants of God. That's not reflected in, in the way people glam to this and try to get on and, 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 and just clamor for this position. And it's not even who they are. There's specifically 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, from Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. And it's like it's never enough. There's a group. They, they exist largely within the extreme Pentecostal churches in America and in uh, Western Europe. And they try to say that the lost tribes of Israel are actually in Western Europe and England. And I had somebody tell me once that my grandma, her last name was Spencer. And he said, oh, that's a Jewish name. And I said, I'm pretty sure that's not. Again, something's not special enough. Jesus died for me. Jesus shed his blood to save us from our sins. Isn't that enough? And for some, it's not. But who are we actually? It says, after this, verse 9, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and tongue and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and they have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, the throne, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor the scorching heat for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. We're a transformed people. We are not who we were. The old things are passing away. We're a relational people. From every tribe and tongue and nation, the, the, the people who just clamor to be part of the 144,000 want to wall themselves off, us 144 and no more. We're a relational people from every tribe and tongue and nation and, and, and countless, countless millions of believers. And we're not exclusive. Anyone is welcome to join. Anyone can be in. We're in relationship with God. We're in relationship with each other. And we are renewed. The Lamb will lead us to springs of living water. When you get ahead at the end of the book of the Revelation and it describes the new heavens and the new earth and there is a river and the, the trees along the river bring healing to the nations. There is so much brokenness in this world. And you can see that in chapter 6. Conquering, injustice, inequity, war, famine, suffering elites and rulers who know what they're doing is wrong and they continue anyway. The average person who goes and hides instead of repenting. And yet, 
we have been transformed and we have been given relationship and we have been renewed. The contrast between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is so clear. It's so evident. There are two paths we can walk. We can walk down the path of chapter 6. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live my own way. I will not repent. And that way leads to death. We can go down the path of chapter 7. Is is it easy? No. Many of these were slain for their testimony. But we're transformed. We're renewed. We're restored into relationship with God and with each other. We live in a fallen, broken world. This is the hope. This is the answer. We are the ones who are brought out of the madness and the destruction. This is the people that God has made us and is making us. And to that we say, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you say, I I don't know, am I really set free? Am I really changed? The Bible says that if a person believes in their heart, confesses publicly with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. The person who says, can I truly be set free? Read chapter 7 again. Yes, yes, yes. All who believe in Jesus will be saved, will be transformed, will be renewed. The healing begins here, is completed then and there, but it's open to all. The path might be hard, the path might cost you your life, but it's worth it, billion times over. Well, we'll see you next Sunday as we continue to study the book of the Revelation. We'll see you in the small groups this week. And we'll be on uh, social media and the podcast. You can follow us there at Faith on Hill. God bless you. May the peace of God be present in your life. May the hope of Christ be full in your world. And may the power of the Holy Spirit go with you today. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Stop, us here.